We live in a world that is facing one of its biggest challenges in living memory. The coronavirus pandemic has devastating potential as it sweeps across the globe. To fight this virus and slow its spread, we've had to change almost everything about how we live our lives. In Coronavirus Examined, we're talking to experts from the University of Sheffield to explore the different ways in which coronavirus is changing our world and the way we live. I'm Alicia Shepherd, and welcome to Coronavirus Examined. Each episode, we're speaking to a different academic via the socially distant means of video chat to ask them for their expert takes on the broad ranging impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Julie Gottlieb from our Department of History. Julie is an expert in historical crisis, and in this episode, we're going to discuss how the coronavirus crisis relates to others throughout history. Um, I just wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research interests. Um, I'm a professor of modern history in the Department of History at the University of Sheffield. My current project is my project on the Munich crisis of 1938. I'm not looking at it from a a purely political point of view. Actually, I'm looking at it from a personal uh, point of view, from the psychological and psychiatric dimension, uh, from the history of emotion, where I see a lot of parallels uh, between the crises that we've been living through in the form of the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. I wondered, first of all, what role royals play in these kind of crises. So with coronavirus, with Brexit, with the Munich uh, crisis, could you go into that in a little bit of detail for us? Yeah, it's a really uh, uh, good question. And it's been something that I've been thinking about in the last uh, few hours, um, uh, uh, you know, less than a day after the Queen addressed the nation last night at 8pm. Um, and what is very clear, um, and that was in un- unmistakable was that she was evoking the so-called blitz spirit, the spirit of Dunkirk, that idea which has been, uh, you know, become really a cliche, in fact, that of keeping calm and carrying on. Uh, She also, of course, um, cited Vera Lynn's lyrics, we shall meet again. Uh, We don't know uh, where, uh, uh, but we, and we certainly don't know when um, in our our current state uh, of crisis. Well, this is a narrative that really gives the royal seal of approval um, to thinking in these terms, to the kind of the comparison between between um, a mental health crisis, a, a physical health crisis, um, and, 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 and war. Um, so what the Queen did yesterday uh, was that she kind of gave the royal seal of approval to how we should be thinking and talking about um, our current uh, uh, predicament. Now, it was interesting because I, I, I listened to the speech as it, as it was broadcast, but I also uh, uh, inevitably looked at kind of social media uh, and my vantage point of social media. Uh, you know, obviously we all uh, have our own group on, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever we use. And what I noticed um, overwhelmingly, the response was very positive amongst both those who I think are sympathetic uh, to royalty and, and are, are monarchists of, of, of some sort, but also amongst people I know to be kind of monarchy skeptics. Um, And what was clear is that people really had a sense of kind of comfort, that sense of comfort after hearing the Queen was really palpable. Um, People suggested that the Queen's words gave kind of a new sense of meaning to this pandemic, a new purpose, a new urgency to staying home uh, and answering the nation's call by doing well nothing. Um, which, of course, that's the big contrast between um, uh, 80 plus years ago and now. But nonetheless, uh, that that 
you know, it was, I think, an, important for a lot of people to have um, the, the, their current predicament framed, um, not only historically, but by that figurehead. I wanted to just also draw on, if I could, other parallels. Um, again, um, taking this example of the role of the monarchy in, in narrating or helping us narrate uh, 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 the crisis for us. There are many parallels that can be drawn with the um, uh, with the mine of national memory from which the Queen was so explicitly drawing, um, a, a national memory that she is among uh, the diminishing number who can actually claim also personal memory. So it's not just national memory for her, this is personal memory. And if you remember um, uh, the broadcast yesterday, it was, uh, she, she talked about her own experience in 1940. There was, was, there, there was footage uh, and, and a photograph of her and her sister addressing the nation in 1942. So, you know, again, she is, she is personally implicated in this. Um, and the fact that she lived through the 1930s and 1940s gives her the right and the legitimacy to haul out this national memory, to, to drag it out again um, and to make sense of it. But what I want to say is that the parallels uh, are not only with the 19, with 1940 and onward, not only with the Second World War. Um, and that's what I want to draw out a little more if I could. So let's go back to 1938-39 and especially the emergency, the crisis uh, of the autumn of 1938. So this is something that has, has been described, of course, and is familiar to, uh, to, to, to those who live through it and, and to politicians and to historians as the Munich crisis. Now, there's a royal story here, too. Uh, indeed, royal endorsement is just as important now as it was back then. So doing the kind of unprecedented, and again, that term unprecedented, uh, as, a as a response to crises was as important in 1938 as it is now uh, for determining the nature and the severity of the event, that sense of occasion and the uniqueness of the moment. Okay, so I think bringing in that, that, that royal aspect really emphasizes how uh, this moment is unique, uh, that we're in an emergency, that this is something that can own, that, that deserves everyone's attention from the, 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 the lower down up to the very top. Um, and, and I think, again, that we can see some parallels with, with what happened yesterday in the response to the, uh, the Queen's address. Do you expect to see similar things now that the Queen has addressed the nation in relation to the coronavirus crisis? Do you expect that it might not be that people are going out and buying the same types of products in relation to it, but what could we expect in a similar kind of way? All right, so there are two quite different crises. I'm not suggesting that the parallels are easy or neat, um, but they are apples and oranges, right? But both apples and oranges make juice. And the juice that I want to look at here is, is the emotional, uh, the emotional kind of liquor uh, of, of these two crises, one uh, from 80 plus years ago and the one that we're living through today. All right, so I think the way to do that, as I say, is to, to go back to the, the theme or the question of feeling. Um, and the permission to feel, I was, that's what I was trying to draw out when I was talking about, um, you know, uh, the royal endorsement uh, element. It kind of gives the permission to feel, uh, to show emotion, uh, to, to it kind of admit that you have the, the importance of kind of personal catharsis at moments of national catharsis and of national emergency. So in at least a, um, in these last couple of weeks, uh, um, since the, the COVID-19 pandemic 
um, has played itself out. There has been reassuringly attention paid to the mental health symptoms alongside uh, the, the physical uh, symptoms of the virus. So going back to the late 1930s, uh, as a direct consequence of the uh, accelerating uh, uh, crisis and politics and an accompanying sense of, of doom in international affairs, preparations then were being made to deal with the psychological and psychiatric uh, impact of the, the political crisis and of course of, of the coming of war. Now, another interesting uh, kind of analogy here is, is the fear of modern warfare in terms of its nature. Modern warfare in the late 1930s um, was going to be a different kind of warfare, different from the First World War. There had been examples already. Um, people, you know, this was was tangible because um, people had, you know, in Britain, people had either witnessed or or seen covered in the news, or some of them had actually traveled um, and, and taken part in conflicts in Manchuria, in Abyssinia, and especially in Spain uh, during the you know Spanish Civil War. This was a war that was coming from the air, aerial bombardment, a war where civilian and soldier were hardly distinguished in in the risk that they ran. Um, and another element that was important, and again uh, that has come to my mind many times in the last couple of weeks was the fear of the unseen. There was a great fear that this was going to be gas war, that this the, the, uh, the use of poison gas was going to be widespread and that the Nazis were um, preparing to do just this. Um, so again, we have many, many um, uh, commentators in the last few weeks have talked about this is a war against the unseen. Um, and again, the parallel there is quite striking. The other motif in relation to that is the mask um, that, you know, the, the all the attention, both uh, in, in cartoons, in, you know, in, in our in our imagination, in the very tangible, in what people are trying to produce, making homemade masks, how to do that, um, whether these masks are efficient, whether masks are any protection against the virus, all of that uh, rings a bell, to say the least. All right. So in the uh, late 1930s and 1938, it was the gas mask, um, the gas mask was there to, to try to, to arm the people against this war of the unseen. So what's very similar is the fear around um, this equipment, whether it's adequate, whether it will serve its purpose, whether there's enough of it, who gets it, who has access to it. Um, everyone's at the front lines, right? Why do we talk about the front lines? I mean, that of course is a militarized uh, 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 you know, imagining of what's going on. So the language of war used in narrating the pandemic um, is, as I say, very, very prominent and, and started right away from when this, uh, you know, this crisis became the only news, really. Another interesting parallel is about voluntarism. I want to talk about that, too, a little bit, if that's OK. Um, again, in the late 1930s, there was an organization called ARP, Air Raid Precautions, which was um, government uh, uh, organized, uh, but that depended on volunteers. And these were people who would um, be available in the event of, uh, of, of airstrikes or uh, of, of a civilian bombing um, to create a, a sense of combat order and, and actually, uh, you know, um, uh, move people on and, and keep, you know, people as safe as possible. Um, uh, it was a dangerous job, but a voluntary one as well. Um, and um, uh, it really ramped up. Uh, using 
a, a term that's familiar these days, it really ramped up in 1938 uh, around the Munich crisis, um, and it, it gained a lot of new recruits as well. Um, so, you know, this is an interesting uh, parallel too, I think. And what we've seen, although, it, you know, we're all kind of in lockdown and, and in, in, in virtual house arrest, there has been nonetheless a surge in volunteerism. So as I said, these are different um, crises in 1938 and today. Um, but where there are a lot of similarities and where you know I keep on um, hearing resonances um, uh, with the past is in terms of feeling, emotion, our responses, how we are reacting, how we're coping um, with what's going on. Why do we look at history um, when we're in the midst of a, of a crisis in the moment? and in the present. I think it's because we need some kind of comfort. Um, we need some kind of context. Uh, we need to kind of feel that we're not alone in this and that we haven't been alone in this. Uh, that there are, I was talking earlier about the fact that, you know, that sense of suspense, that, 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 that real kind of uh, insecurity, that there's no roadmap, that there's no obvious kind of ending uh, to this, that this doesn't, uh, this pandemic doesn't follow a, a familiar narrative or, or dramatic arc. Um, I think history comes to the rescue there um, in some senses, that, you know, even when things are, as I said, apples and oranges, there's enough um, uh, to, you know, there, there, are, there are examples uh, from which we can draw some, some kind of comfort, some insight uh, into where things might go it does ultimately um, contribute to giving us a, a sense of, as I say, a sense of kind of perspective. So historians are not prophets, nor should they claim to be. Um, and they're very cautious, at least the historians I know are always very, very cautious by, by suggesting that, you know, nothing is trite as history repeating itself. But history does give us that kind of sense of perspective, um, that, that kind of you know, and it also it's it satisfies a need um, uh, for for insight, uh, for um, for knowledge, for intellectual stimulation, um, and also for feeling in some ways, even though you know it's it's a, across time and space, we're not in this alone. A huge thanks again to Julie for speaking to us on coronavirus examined. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll join us for our next episode, where we'll be talking to Professor Lenny Co about the impact of the crisis on global supply chains. Coronavirus Examined is a podcast series from the University of Sheffield. It's presented by me, Alicia Shepherd, and edited and produced by Harry Clulo and Tommy Wilson. To find out more about the University of Sheffield's research around coronavirus, head to sheffield.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash coronavirus.